While you're turning there, I wanted to mention that my 16-year-old son recently bought a used Chevy Malibu, and the car, based on its age and condition, probably should have sold for about $4,000, but he bought it for $1,800 because it doesn't start frequently. It was kind of a problem with the car, so um, it has a flywheel problem. The flywheel doesn't always engage, so frequently when he gets in the car, he'll turn the key maybe four to eight times until it finally engages and starts. And this causes him a little bit of stress if he has to be somewhere by a certain time wondering if the car's going to start, or a little bit of embarrassment if he has a friend in this car if it won't start. We took it a few times on a trip. I remember we went a 10-hour trip up to northern Michigan, and I said, we're not going to turn this thing off. If we're at a rest stop or a fast food or something, we're just going to keep this thing running. I'll sit in it. And we did have to stop a couple times for gas. And each time we hoped and prayed that it would start. And this is really the theme when my son gets in the car, if anybody else drives it, I mean, he will say to himself or to a friend if he's with him, I hope the car starts. And on our trips, every time we had to stop to get gas, I would say, I hope the car starts. And there's no guarantee that it will ever start. A couple of times we had to come back the next day after it wouldn't start and then it started the next morning. Uh, but it always has eventually started. But there's no guarantee. One of these signs it may not start at all. And this kind of hope is not a certain hope. There's no guaranteed outcome. It's it's a little bit stronger maybe than hoping that your team wins the World Series or hoping that your team wins the Super Bowl or even hoping you get a particular job or hoping that your health improves. We hope that it does so. It's a little bit above wishful thinking, but um, there's no guarantee that it will. But biblical hope is the opposite of hoping that my son's car starts. Biblical hope is certain. It's the confident expectation of what God has promised. And so if you have health troubles or relational troubles or problems in the family or on the job or with finances. You don't have a guaranteed outcome, but there are certain things that you can hope for that are guaranteed. The blessings of salvation that God showers upon us give us hope. Let's turn, or let me uh, read now, after that long introduction from Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Go ahead and stand with me, please, as we read from Romans 5 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more... Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Father, all scripture has been inspired by you and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for for correction for training in righteousness so that we will be equipped for every good work. Father, please thoroughly equip us for the good work of hoping in you 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, at a previous church, I led a summer missions team, a short-term missions team, to Guadalajara, Mexico, where we put on a sports camp. And we had about 25 adults and teens that went on this trip, and we prepared very well. We put on a practice sports camp in Illinois before we went, and we flew to Guadalajara, and we got settled into the place where we were staying, and we went out and had a good meal, and the camp was going to start the next morning. We had we expected 80 kids to come to the sports camp. We were going to lead a camp in basketball and soccer skills, and a lot of skits and music and having fun in the name of Jesus. So I was so excited, I had trouble falling asleep. I think I fell asleep about 2 that morning, had to get up at 6 to head off to the camp. But at 3 in the morning, my roommate, who was also our logistics coordinator, the guy that arranged all the transportation, was going to drive the bus around that week. He started pounding on my, on my bed. He said, Greg, wake up. He said, I have a stomach virus, and I've been up for a while being sick, and I'm listening around the house, and it sounds to me like there's other people in the house that have this stomach virus as well. So I got up, and I went through the house, and sure enough, about a third of the 25 people there had come down with this stomach virus, and we're not going to be going to that camp the next morning. So we were down by a third, and we scrambled. Our bus driver was sick, and we arranged some transportation, made it out to the camp. The 80 kids were there, but it did not go well. The Games we were playing, we did soccer and basketball drills, distance scrimmages. The kids just were not engaged. It wasn't going well at all. The kids were not having fun. They just kind of stared off into space while we were leading them in songs. And one of our adult leaders, who did not have the gift of encouragement, came up to me and said, Pastor Greg, the kids are not having a good time, and they are not coming back. So this is going to be a two-a-day camp for a week, and already I'm starting to panic, I'm picturing having to go back and report to my church that the one-week camp ended after the first morning. None of the kids came back. So I'm feeling just pretty miserable about the whole thing and worried and hopeless, really. And so we went back, had our afternoon siesta to get ready for the evening camp, and we they, everybody just stared at me. I tried to lead a devotion. People just stared off into space. Like a third of us were sick. The rest of us were discouraged. I wondered how this was going to work out. So we trudged back out to the camp that afternoon, and it still wasn't going well. The 80 kids came back, but it still didn't seem like they were having a good time. And now there was a threat of heavy rains coming in. I thought, oh, no, it's going to rain. They're all going to go home. We're not going to see them again. So it started sprinkling and then raining steadily and then pouring. So we had a 30-minute downpour, and this was the turning point of the camp. For some reason, when the rain came and everybody was soaked, it became a big party. So we stopped playing the games Our music leaders started leading some of the songs that we had learned in the morning. The kids were jumping up and down, dancing, uh, just getting soaked and having fun. And it's just this big, massive, wet Christian rain party. And then when the rain ended, we canceled the games the rest of the day and just went and did skits and songs. And they just had a great time. Then the next morning, kids invited their friends. We had like 20 more kids that came the next morning. The whole camp grew throughout the week. But I look back on that downpour of showers that we had as really the turning point of the camp. That was when a hopeless situation started to seem to have a little bit of hope. Once it started raining and the kids were having a good time, I felt like possibly I started to have hope that the camp was going to be a success, that something was going to, good was going to come out of it, and it ended up being very successful. And in our own lives, we have to realize that uh, we don't have a guaranteed outcome when we have trouble with our finances, our health, our family, with our relationship. There's no guarantee. 
And even then, even when the rain came and I had hope that things were going to get better, I still didn't have a sure and confident hope. The kids, there was no guarantee the kids were going to come back the next day. But with the blessings of salvation that God pours upon us, there is a guaranteed outcome. These blessings are guaranteed to come upon us and to give us hope. So the blessings of salvation that God showers upon us give us hope. What are these blessings? The first is that God accepts us. We have peace with God. Look at verse 1 there in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The central teaching of the first four chapters of Romans is that when we believe in Jesus, God justifies us. He forgives our sins. And he declares us to be righteous, which means that we have right standing with him. We're in a right relationship with him. And we also have peace with God. When Jesus died, God became at peace with us. And when we believed in Jesus, we became at peace with God. Therefore, the blessings of salvation are legal and relational. Legally, God declares us to be right with him. Relationally, we have peace with God. And we have access to God, verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is the unmerited favor that God bestows upon the believer. Verse 2 tells us that not only is God gracious toward us, but we live in the realm of grace. We don't enter and exit God's dwelling place. We live there constantly, and we live there with ongoing and permanent access to God. We have peace with God. We have access to God. We also have joy in God. We rejoice in the hope of God's glory. Look at the last part of verse 2. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. God's hope is not uncertain, like hoping that it's going to rain today, or hoping that our team wins the championship, or hoping that we get a particular job. Christian hope is certain because it's founded on God's promises. We hope in God's glory, the verse tells us. And we know we'll see God's glory in creation, in the face of Jesus that we see by faith even today, and in the final state of affairs in the new heavens and the new earth. We rejoice in hope of God's glory. Paul catches us off guard, though, now with his next statement. Not only do we rejoice rejoice in the hope of God's glory, but we rejoice in the hope built up through suffering. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It isn't our natural inclination to rejoice in suffering. Verse 3 explains the rationale for doing so. First, suffering produces endurance. We couldn't learn endurance without suffering because we wouldn't have anything to endure. Second, endurance produces character. Daily endurance builds up over time into mature Christian character. And third, character produces hope. Responding to suffering with a proper attitude strengthens our hope. Hope is like a muscle that atrophies if it's unused. But hope is strengthened when we exercise it in daily suffering. So we rejoice not only in the hope of God's glory, but also in the hope built up through suffering. God has showered us with blessings that give us hope. Peace with God, access to God, and joy in God. Two high school best friends, Wayne and Dave, had very similar high school experiences. 
They took similar classes. They had the same friends. They made similar grades. They participated in similar extracurricular activities. Then they applied to the same college their senior year, and this is where their lives diverged. The fall semester of their senior year, Wayne was accepted into the college that they both had applied to, but Dave was rejected. Wayne, out of his acceptance, already knowing he's accepted into the college of his dreams, lived the second semester of his senior year with joyful abandon. He took the classes that he wanted to take rather than the classes he thought would look good on his transcript. He wrote the papers on topics that were interesting to him rather than topics that he thought the teachers wanted him to write about. He participated in extracurricular activities that seemed like fun rather than the ones that he thought colleges might be impressed by. Dave, who had not been accepted by the same college, lived the second semester of his senior year with joyless drudgery. He took the classes that he thought would look good on his record. He wrote the papers he thought his teachers wanted him to write. He participated in extracurricular activities that he thought the college admissions office would like. So Wayne lived that final semester out of being accepted into college, knowing that, with joyful peace. But Dave, not having been accepted, lived with joyless striving. And the Christian life is the same. The blessing of salvation that we're talking about now is that God accepts us. And knowing that he accepts us, we now can live with peace and the knowledge of access to him and joy. So how does God's acceptance of us give us hope? Consider the cancer patient, maybe you or a loved one. How does knowing that God accepts you give you hope in your cancer? If you have cancer, remember that you also have peace with God. You have chills and aches and surgeries and tiredness and long long times waiting in the waiting rooms in the pathology department, but you also are secure in a relationship with God. God is favorably disposed toward you. He accepts you. God accepts you, and you have peace with him. You also have access to God. You live continually in the realm of God's grace. Just as a mother will spend the night in the hospital room with her sick child who's been admitted, God is with you in the cancer ward. And through scripture, God speaks to you, and through prayer, you speak to God. So you have access to God. You also can have joy in God. It isn't our natural inclination to rejoice in suffering, but suffering, this passage tells us, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Rejoicing in suffering, therefore, increases our hope in God. If you have cancer, or if you have marital strife, or estrangement from adult children, or conflict on your job, you can rest in the hope that you have something you can never lose, And that is God's acceptance, which gives you peace, access, and joy. So hope increases when we realize that God accepts us, and also when we realize that God loves us. God has poured his love into us by the gift of his spirit. Look at verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. At the final judgment, those who hope in Christ will not be put to shame. How can we be certain that we're safe at the final judgment? Not just because we intellectually know that Christ died for us, but also because of the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit who tells us in our hearts that God loves us. All who trust in Christ have the Holy Spirit take up residence in their hearts. And through the Holy Spirit, God pours his love into our hearts 
And it isn't a mist or a sprinkle of love. It's a downpour of love that fills our hearts. God has poured his love into us by the gift of his spirit, and he has proved his love for us by the death of his son. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much does God love us? We can measure the degree of God's love by the costliness of the gift and the worthiness of the recipient. How costly was God's gift to us? Verses 6 and 8 tell us that Christ died for us. Verse 10 tells us that God's Son died for us. God's own Son bore our sins in his body on the cross in our place. How worthy were the recipients? Verse 6 says that Christ died for the weak and ungodly. Verse 8 says that he died for sinners. Verse 10 says that he died for God's enemies. So God gave the costliest gift, his son, to the most unworthy recipients, weak, ungodly, sinful people, even God's enemies. Verse 7 says that someone might die for a good person. The shocking thing is that Jesus died for his enemies. God has poured his love into us by the gift of his son, and he's proved his love for us by the gift of his spirit, and he's proved his love for us by the death of his son. Author Brennan Manning has written about the origin of his name, Brennan. He grew up with his best friend, Ray. They played together, went to school together, played sports together, went on double dates together. They enlisted in the army together, and they went to war together. And Brandon Manning tells about how he and his friend Ray were in a foxhole and a live grenade was thrown into the foxhole and Ray smiled at his best friend Brandon and then he threw himself on top of the grenade. He died and Brandon's life was saved. After the war, Brandon became a Franciscan priest and he was asked to take on the name of a saint, to take on a new name, that of a saint. And he chose the name of his friend, Ray Brennan. He took his friend Ray's last name and made it his first name. Some years later, Brennan was sipping, sipping coffee with the mother of his deceased friend Ray, and he said, I wonder if Ray loved me. And Ray's mother stood up, and she shook her finger at him, and she said, what more could he have done for you? And Brennan says that he had an epiphany at this moment, and he had a dream shortly after, and he dreamt that he was at the foot of the cross of Jesus at his crucifixion. And he said in his dream, I wonder if Jesus loves me. And he said in his dream, Mary, the mother of Jesus, came over to him and stood there and pointed her finger and said, what else could he have done for you? So Jesus died for us to show his great love for us. Sometimes we might wonder in our moment of insecurity, does God really love me? It's understandable. Because so much love seems transient. In marriages, in relationships, in friendships, love can seem temporary. Think about the person whose parents divorced when she was a child, and then she now is estranged from her own siblings. And her own marriage has disintegrated, and she's lost friends coming out of that process. It's understandable that she would wonder, can divine love be different from temporary human love. Today's passage tells us it is. 
Jesus died to prove his love. The Holy Spirit pours an awareness of God's love into us, not a mist or a sprinkle, but a downpour of God's love into our hearts. Human love can be transient, but God's love is permanent. God accepts us, he loves us, and he assures us of our future. Verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God has already justified us by the death of Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, God declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be right with him, to have a right relationship with him. If he's already done this for us, if he's already declared us to have a right relationship with him, surely he will save us from his wrath at the final judgment. Those who through faith in Jesus have been justified by his blood will be saved from God's wrath. God assures us of our future, and he assures us by Christ's life. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciliation removes the alienation between God and people. Through reconciliation, God removes the barrier to a relationship between God and man. God removed his anger for our sin by placing it upon Jesus on the cross. And God removes the guilt for our sin when we believe in Jesus. Formerly enemies, now God is our father and we are his children. Jesus' life and death save us into a relationship with God. God assures us of our future. He assures us by Christ's life. And he assures us for rejoicing, verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul encourages us in this summary verse to rejoice in the showers of hope that God has rained down upon us. We have lots to rejoice about, that God accepts us, that God loves us, and God assures us. We rejoice in the blessings of salvation that give us hope. My son, another son, not the 16-year-old with the Malibu, my 19-year-old with a truck, um, has recently moved to Los Angeles, where he is a professional video gamer. So this is every teenage boy's dream, but he, I never heard of such a thing until a few months ago, but Isaac is actually paid to play in competition the mobile game Clash Royale. So about six weeks ago, Isaac moved to Los Angeles. He loaded up his truck, and I went with him and then so I could fly back but help him get settled in. So we set out on the 2,000-mile drive to Los Angeles from Peoria, and the drive was very pleasant. We through Illinois, and then we went through Iowa and Nebraska, beautiful, very pleasant, relaxing scenery. And then the first half of Colorado, uh, very beautiful, pleasant, and relaxing. We started to enter into the Rocky Mountains. We came out of Denver, and it went from peaceful and relaxing to stressful, I thought. And we went into the Rocky Mountains, and the speed limit in Colorado is 75, and Isaac has a policy that if the speed limit is such and such, he's going to go five miles an hour over. So we're driving 80 miles an hour through the Rocky Mountains, sometimes down 6% downgrades, sometimes through winding mountain passes and valleys, sometimes with no barriers or no shoulder on the side of the road, and with heavy traffic the whole way, with semis right on our back, and we're hurtling down the mountain, and Isaac is relaxed, but I'm thinking to myself, and I said that many times, Isaac, I hope we make it out of these mountains alive. And so we hoped and prayed the whole time 
At least I did. He seemed to be enjoying it. He grew up on video games, so going 80 miles an hour through mountains is nothing to him. But oh, the whole time, I'm just hoping that we make it out there. And I said many times, Isaac, I hope we make it out of there alive. It was very, it was not enjoyable at all. So we finally uh, made it out of the Colorado Rockies. Now we're in Utah, and there were some straight stretches, but a lot of mountains in Utah as well. And here we started hitting construction. And the speed limit in Utah is now 80. It's 75 in Colorado. So 80, and so of course we're going 85 now with traffic and trucks and through mountains and down, again, inclines and uh, now through construction zones at night. So we're going 85 miles an hour at night through mountains in construction zones, and I'm thinking, I hope we make it. And so we finally get out of the Utah Rockies. We make it into Nevada. We're in the mountains for a little while, but then we're on straight, then we're in the desert. So now we're, I'm finally relaxing. We're in the peaceful Nevada desert. It's hot out there, but we're calm. We're going straight, and I'm whew, Finally, it looks like we're going to make it. And then uh, we, the car started making noises and shaking and rattling. And we're like, what is that? And he, he, Isaac kept saying, this road really seems bumpy. But we're looking, it looks like a very smooth, well-maintained road, but the car is shaking. We're looking in the glove box and under the seat and overhead. And Why is the car shaking so much? Over the next 30 minutes, the car started shaking more and more. And then it's like shaking like steadily and heavily, like it's just going to blow up. Then it started shaking violently, so we're lurching back and forth. I said, Isaac, Pull over. So just as he's about to pull over, the drive shaft of the car falls off in the middle of the highway, a big boom, and then we drove over it, a big bump, and we coasted to the side. And now the engine is still running, but it can't go anywhere without a drive shaft. So we sit there. Isaac goes back an eighth mile up the road and picks up the drive shaft, brings it back, and throws it in the back of the truck. We call the tow truck, and he comes and picks us up, takes us back the way the wrong way. Uh, to the only place that's open in this small Nevada town, and a Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock. So certainly we're not going to get any parts, we're not going to have any repairs on Saturday afternoon. So now I'm just thinking, I hope we make it there at all. Not only hope we make it alive, but hope we make it at all, and also hope we make it by the deadline. Isaac had to be there by a certain time, and so Saturday, Sunday, no repairs, and I'm thinking, I hope they can find the parts to fix it, I hope they can get it fixed, so praying and hoping, but no guaranteed outcome. There was no certainty the car could even be repaired, for an affordable price. No certainty we were going to make it there by his deadline. But the car ended up being repaired on Monday, and we made it there, drove, made it to Los Angeles, 10 o'clock Monday night. And But there was no guarantee at any point when I was hoping we'd make it alive out of the mountains or hoping we'd make it on time that we would. But the biblical hope we're learning about today is not like that hope. It's a confident hope. It's a certain expectation knowing that what God promises is true, that God accepts us, that he loves us, and that he assures us. So the weather forecast today is 100% certain. The weather forecast is there's going to be showers of blessing that give us hope. 